Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. Today, as we celebrate the founding of this country, we do so understanding that it is a country in trouble. Secularism has pervaded the culture, and modern American Christianity has proven ineffective. With the advent of modern media, we have access to more preachers than ever, but there are few powerful preachers. There are churches abounding all across the country, but there are few powerful ones, few that are truly changing the culture around them for Christ. And while Christians are all over the news and social media, the country continues to degrade. In short, American Christianity is ineffective. And last week, we looked at the reasons for this. We looked at the marks and discussed the marks of an effective Christian from the first six verses of 2 Timothy 2. We saw that the marks are discipling others, staying focused on Christ, doing the hard work of the spiritual disciplines, and working hard in our Christian life. And yet, I recognize that even as we walked through these last week in this text, many of these marks seemed to be kind of pie-in-the-sky ideas for us, targets for us to reach. While we were convicted of what we needed to do, we often feel as though we lack the strength to actually do it. Real life happens. The Christian life is hard. It's hard to live and actually live it out and work it out. Simply, you know, willing ourselves to do better doesn't work. We've discovered that in real life. We want to see the nation impacted for God, but doing the everyday hard work of evangelism and discipleship, study of the word, the spiritual disciplines, it seems out of reach in everyday, day-to-day living. Well, in the next section that we're going to cover today, God, we see that God does not just call us to be effective Christians. He actually gives us the strength to be an effective Christian. He doesn't just call us to do his work, but he also gives us the power to accomplish his work. Let's look at our text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse number 7. Paul writes, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. As we look at this text, we're reminded that we can be effective Christians. We can accomplish the tasks that God has called us to, that he set before us. We can impact this community. We can impact the country with the gospel of Christ. We can find the strength to be effective because God will grant us that strength. And as we work through this text, we'll discover that this strength to be an effective Christian is granted to us as we remember 
two important things. The first thing that we have to remember is we must remember God's work. Remember God's work. This is verses 7 through 9. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. See, God grants us the strength to be effective Christians, to accomplish those things we talked about last week as we remember God's work, specifically two aspects of God's work. As we remember that God gives us understanding. He says, think over what I just said. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, this is important to understand what he's saying here. He says, think over. You need to consider, contemplate, mull over the things that I have told you. We have the responsibility to ponder the commandments and the promises of God. Now, specifically, Paul is referring to the last text in which he laid out the marks of the effective Christian. Simply reading the text, simply listening to the message is not enough. We must ponder, we must contemplate what we have read and what we've heard. We have to digest the concepts. We have to determine how to work them out in our everyday lives. Again, this reminds us that simply going through the motions is ineffective. Too many Christians... Too many people believe that sitting through a message on Sunday fulfills our Christian duty and that God expects nothing more of their spiritual life. And so they mindlessly fill a pew and promptly forget the word of God presented as they continue about their weekly lives. But this is not what God expects. Others are simply arrogant. They're unteachable. They believe that they already know, they already understand everything that God, that, that we need to know from God from His Word. I already get it. I don't need any more. And so they don't contemplate over what God says. They don't study the Word themselves. But both situations lead to a lack of effectiveness. The first part of finding the strength to be effective comes through our action by thinking through, contemplating, pondering, digesting what we've heard from God's word. But this contemplation comes with a promise. When we do this work, God will give us understanding. God will give us insight. You know, many Christians have Bible knowledge, but they don't have insight because they're not contemplating on that knowledge. And when we consider what we've learned, what we've read, what we've heard, God works in us to grant us the insight into how it can work out in our lives. He gives us insight into what the text means, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And as the Christian ponders and applies the expectations of God to his own life, God, the Lord, will increase his powers of understanding. The more you do it, the more you'll understand. One man, John Stott, said this, For the understanding of Scripture, a balanced combination of thought and prayer is essential. We must do the considering, and the Lord will do the giving of understanding. God says it himself this way in Proverbs 2, 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. 
In James 1, we're told that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is a blessing because it means that your understanding of the word of God is not dependent on your mental ability. Right? It means that just because you believe that you are brilliant, academically gifted, does not mean that you understand the word of God. On the other side, just because you believe that you don't have book smarts, you're just a normal person, doesn't mean that you can't understand the Word of God. You see, insight into the Word of God and how it applies to your life does not depend on your mental acuity. Rather, it comes from God. He grants this insight to those who contemplate on His Word. So remember, it's God who gives understanding. Secondly, we must remember that it is Jesus Christ. We must remember Jesus Christ. He says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. As we say often, your view of God determines your view of life. And so you must remember Jesus Christ. You need to call to memory all about Jesus Christ. This echoes what Paul already wrote in Romans 1, 3, and 4. He says, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see, we are granted strength to be effective Christians first by dwelling on the victory over death and the glory of Christ, risen from the dead. Because the God who raised Jesus from the dead is the same one who will daily empower you. The resurrection is the most prominent and important Christian truth because it guarantees all the other promises of God. Now, it's important to note here The way it's written. Remember Jesus Christ risen. That's past tense. It's saying that Jesus is alive. He didn't just raise and die again. He is alive today. We do not worship an event or simply a person from history. We don't worship something that is in the past. We worship Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's why we sang about this all day today. He conquered death and he's alive today. This fact that Jesus conquered death and is alive presents the absolute power of God. If Jesus can conquer death, then Jesus can certainly strengthen us in our suffering. Jesus can certainly empower us to be Effective Christians. You see, God would not allow Jesus to die for our sin and raise him for our justification, conquering death simply so that he would forget us in our suffering for Christ. He did not draw us to salvation and grant us eternal life simply so that some finite politician could conquer Christianity. He didn't conquer death, overcome it simply to forget us in our suffering and struggles. He didn't conquer sin and then leave us powerless in our struggle with sin. One man said this, Through his death and resurrection, Christ broke the shackles of sin and of its wages, death, which is the greatest weapon of Satan. 
When we trusted in Christ, he became our savior and our Lord, breaking the power of sin and death and of Satan in our own lives. Further, not only do we remember that Jesus rose from the dead, we also remember that he is the descendant of David. What is this all about? Well, this is a reference to Jesus' physical lineage, which connects him to the promise that David's descendant would reign Forever, He's pointing back to 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, where God promised David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And the angel proclaimed that this was fulfilled in Jesus. Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now we remember as Paul is writing this, he is writing this from the cell in Rome. He has no hope of release. He is awaiting death for his belief in Christ. And yet as he writes to Timothy and writes to us, he is saying, Jesus Christ, not Nero, Jesus Christ has the reins of the universe in his hands. And he will continue to govern all things in the interest of his church and unto the glory of God forever. He's writing to us, reminding us that Jesus Christ, not Joe Biden, not Gretchen Whitmer, not the Supreme Court, no politician holds the power in their hands. Jesus Christ is the king for all eternity. And so as I started this, the, the worship today, reminding us that today is a special day. We are incredibly grateful for the country in which we live. We ought to be patriotic. We ought to thank God for the hundreds, a uh, couple hundred year reprieve that he has given us in which to worship him freely and in truth. But we must also understand that we worship and are part of and citizens of a kingdom that is far greater if God remains and does not return for a series of time, this nation will eventually fall. But God's kingdom doesn't. We are to be reminded that Jesus is the king. Over the last year and a half, this has been stretched in our thinking. As we have struggled through many We'll just say it, stupid decisions by leadership. We have struggled to believe that Jesus is the king. We've been we have struggled to obey the commands in his words because we've struggled with his sovereignty. If you want to survive in suffering, if you want to be an effective Christian, remember Jesus the son of David. He reigns for all eternity. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Hebrews 10, 12 and 13 tells us, but when Jesus Christ had offered all for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus' throne is forever. Colossians 1.18 tells us He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. See, because Paul actually believed this, he was in prison awaiting execution. He said, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring, the descendant of David, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. The word criminal is an interesting word. It refers to being a serious criminal, a dangerous criminal. It refers to violent people without a conscience. The only other time that this word is used in the Bible is in the Gospel of Luke. And it's used in reference to the criminals that were crucified on either side of Jesus. It designated the worst sort of criminals headed for execution. He says, I'm suffering as someone who is designated to be executed. The man said, so then Timothy, the apostle seems to be saying, uh, the apostle seems to be saying, so then Timothy, when you are tempted to avoid pain, humiliation, suffering, or death in your ministry, remember Jesus Christ and think again. Another man said, we must keep in mind that Jesus' path to glory was marked by pain before pleasure. Sorrow before joy, humiliation before glorification, persecution before exaltation, death before resurrection, earthly hatred before heavenly worship. And if it was that way for Christ, why would it be any different for us? Why does this help? Because it leads us to the second thing we must remember in order to find the strength to be effective Christians. We must remember God's word. Notice the end of verse 9. He says, I'm bound, suffering as a criminal. But then he says, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign with him. Or we will also reign with him. If we deny him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. As we remember God's word, there are three things in this section we must remember. First, the word is not bound. Paul sat imprisoned and bound, chained for the cause of Christ. He had no hope of release. He understands that he is going to be executed. But because Jesus Christ rose from the dead and conquered death, he is not afraid of death. He's not afraid of what is coming. And because Jesus Christ reigns over all things and is working all things for the good of the church and for his own glory, he understands the advance of the gospel will happen. The glory of God will remain. While Paul is sitting bound in prison, God's word is not bound. And here we find the most glorious statement in the entire book, but the word of God is not bound. Throughout history, 
there have always been believers. And even in this church, there are believers who believe that the power of the gospel and the church of God is restricted and hampered by social and political opposition. That as political and social opposition happens, the power of God and the power of His Word somehow diminishes. And so, we have to uh, not risk public rebuke or damages because and, and, advan- that won't advance the gospel. Arrest and imprisonment for proclaiming the Word of God and all that it teaches for proclaiming sin, the need for repentance, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. I mean, that, that does not work in this culture. They don't appreciate that. So, They state that the church needs to set aside those things and make the gospel somehow more palatable and the Bible more palatable to the word. Let's not preach and teach the deep theology. Let's not teach what the Bible says. Let's just keep it simple. Because that's the way that it's going to work. Don't rock the boat. Just go along with culture and let's just see where we can impact it. Watering down the message that's going to make it more effective. On the other hand, there's always been Christians, and even in this church there are Christians who seem to be under the illusion that God's word has been effective here in the Western world because of political freedom and religious liberty. That's why it's been effective. And so the fight to maintain and preserve these freedoms is actually a fight to preserve the power of God. And the result is that many Christians who would never think to confront their neighbors with the gospel of Christ are very quick to confront everyone around them with their political opinions and with anger. But the reality is, we do value our freedom and religious liberty. We value that. And we certainly want to impact the culture with the message of God's word and the gospel. We want it to be effective. But we must remember that the effectiveness of God's word is not dependent on us making it palatable or fitting the culture. And we must certainly remember that the power of God and the effectiveness of His Word is not dependent on religious liberty. That is not where the power of God is found. And it is not dependent on a politician in office. The Word of God cannot be bound. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted. And it certainly cannot fail. The Word of God can't be bound. Martin Luther understood this as he fought against the political and religious powers in Germany. Living in hiding, facing arrest and imprisonment and death because he would dare proclaim the gospel of grace that the Catholic Church had it wrong. Salvation is not found in the sacraments, but is found in grace alone. Luther penned these words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. And that word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abides. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. 
but God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. God's word cannot be bound. Do you believe that? Are you quicker to share the gospel? Or are you quicker to share your opinions? Are you ashamed of the message of the gospel, believing that it doesn't work today? Are you looking at pragmatic ways to impact the culture instead of the gospel? Are you more concerned about your political beliefs and who is in office than you are about your spiritual walk with God and who is in your heart? The gospel is always the answer because the gospel is the power of God. As such, the second thing we must remember about God's word is that the gospel is advancing. He says, therefore, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, I am prepared to die for the gospel, understanding that even through my death for the gospel, the gospel will continue to move forward and God will continue to draw the elect to himself. Salvation and the gospel is advancing. You see, suffering advances the gospel. It doesn't hinder it. We often fear that if our religious freedoms fail, Christianity will somehow cease to exist. We fear suffering above all things. Many times we refuse to obey the word of God because it will inconvenience us, much less cause us to suffer. And we believe that this is stopping the advance of the gospel. You see, persecution and suffering cannot stop the advance of God's kingdom. Consider, when the communist revolution took place in China in 1949, there were an estimated 700,000 Christians in the country of China. Over the next few years, an estimated 30 million people were killed as communists took over the country, including the vast majority of those 700,000 Christians. Yet today, 70 years later, there are an estimated 300 million Christians in China. You see, persecution and suffering advance the gospel. You may recall several weeks ago when Tim Fink Bibles International was here. He shared with us this. I've experienced this myself. Pastors in China are asking that we not pray for the persecution to cease. They don't want us to pray that because they understand what is happening. Their persecution, their suffering is advancing the gospel of Christ. In Iran... The church is growing at an unbelievable rate in spite of the renewed persecution by the, by the Islamic leadership. In Iraq, the gospel is moving forward. In Afghanistan, the church is growing. In spite of persecution, martyrdom, and suffering, the gospel continues on. While we're not yet facing direct persecution here in southern Michigan, we do face the suffering of everyday life. And God can and will use that suffering for the advance of the gospel. 
It may be that God is allowing you to endure physical suffering because the way that you glorify God in it opens up gospel opportunities with your friends and your neighbors and your doctors. It may be that God is allowing you to endure emotional suffering because the way that you turn to God in it leads to gospel opportunities. You see, your suffering does not mean that God has forgotten you. Your suffering does not mean that God is not working. Your suffering does not mean that God has left his throne. God is working in you for his purpose. So we can find strength in our suffering to be effective Christians knowing that God is in control. God will grant us his strength to thrive because God desires and purposes to see the gospel advance. So see God's gospel work. It'll give you the strength to be an effective Christian. And we can only do this as we remember the final aspect of God's word. God's promises remain true. They're still true. He says the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithful, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. This is the next of the trustworthy statements found in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And these are well-known statements as we've talked about in the early church, perhaps even hymns that they sang, truths that they all knew, which Paul reminds the church of. The specific hymn had several parts. If we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're faithless, he's faithful because he can't deny himself. This trustworthy statement reminds us that God's promises remain true. Specifically, three promises. The promise that we will live. If we've died with him, we'll live with him. Now, we have to to ask the question, what does it mean to die with Jesus? Is this stating that those who are martyred for Christ will live with Christ? And those who aren't martyred for Christ, well, you're out of luck. Sorry. Well, obviously, that's not the case. And again, the tense of the verb and the next phrase suggests something different. The tense in this verb is past tense. If we have died with him. So it's something that has occurred in the past. In fact, it seems that this statement is taken directly from Romans 6, verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. So this text is referring, this promise is referring to the death of the old man, the death to self, which occurs at salvation and the fact that we have new life in Christ. We're reminded that we, when we are born, are born in sin. We are born the enemies of God. And every one of us lives that out. In fact, Romans 3 tells us there is none righteous, not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that does good, not even one. See, people are bad, not because environment made them bad, but because they're bad. Because there's no one who is good. We are all utterly depraved 
lost in our sin. We cannot approach the perfect God. But God understood this. And so in his love, he made a way of escape. Romans 5 tells us, but that while we were in sin, Christ died for us. His cross work, his death on the cross, he took our sin, our punishment on himself. And in turn, he placed his righteousness on us as if we had never sinned. And we obtain this through faith alone. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, By grace you are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. You can't do enough good. You see, it doesn't matter how good you try to clothe yourself in righteousness. Isaiah 64 tells us it's just like filthy rags. You can't do enough good. Often I'll use the illustration of a diamond. I learned all about them when I had to buy my wife one when I proposed to her. Young man, I knew nothing about them. But you learn all the C's, right? But you learn something. The defects in the diamond. How many defects do there have to be for it to be an imperfect diamond? Just one. It doesn't matter how microscopic it is. And just for the same with every single person. It doesn't matter how small the defect has to be, the sin has to be. Just one disqualifies you from God. And you cannot earn it. You can pray all the prayers you want. You can go to church all that you want. You can be baptized until you know every fish by its first name. And all that will happen is you'll go to hell wet. Because it is by grace alone, not by works. We obtain this only by coming to God in faith. Romans chapter 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If we give God our lives, God, I can do nothing. I cannot control this. I cannot save myself. My life is yours. You're my Lord. And we believe that He was raised from the dead, that His work on the cross was sufficient. That's it. You're saved. And if we have died with him, we will live with him. But not only does this refer to the death at salvation, it also must be referring to the reality that this is a daily death on our part. The Christian life is a daily death to self. We take up the cross and we follow Jesus. So Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I protest, brothers, my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. You see, the promise that because our old man died at salvation, because we take up our cross and follow Christ, we're promised eternal life. We're promised an eternal kingdom. The body, they may kill. But God's word abides still and his kingdom is forever and we will be alive in that kingdom. We will live with God for eternity. We're reminded that if they kill us, we get to be with Jesus. And if they don't kill us, we have a reason to live. For for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21 The second promise we must remember is that we will reign This promise remains true. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. You see, suffering is the norm for the believer. The lives of both Christ and Paul reveal this reality. But through Christ's suffering, He reigns. 
And the promise for us is that if that we endure and remain faithful in the midst of this corrupt world and in the midst of our suffering, we too will reign with Christ. The world will tell you you're out of touch. The world will persecute you. The world will seek to cancel you. The world may minimize our influence. The world may mock us. The world may ridicule us. The world may inform us that we're on the wrong side of history. We need to get with the program. But if we endure, we'll reign with Christ. We've read the end of the book. Christ wins. We're on the right side of history. And this gives us the strength to be an effective Christian. We are in the right. We're not bigots. We're not crazy. We're not foolish. We will reign. And we can be confident of this because He is faithful. It says, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. This section contains both a warning and a promise for us. First, the warning. If we deny God, He will deny us. The word deny means to turn your back on. It speaks of apostasy. Leaving Christ and Christianity altogether. Christ himself said this in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. If we turn our back on God because of the pressure of the world, we prove that we are not children of God. First John tells us they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would not went out from us. But because they went out, we know that they are not children of God. And as a result, one day when they stand before him, he'll state to them, I never knew you. But there's also a promise in this. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, there's an important change in verb here. He said, if we deny him, that verb, he'll deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It suggests a change in topic. Faithless does not mean to turn your back on. Rather, it means to be unfaithful or to a temporary lapse in loyalty to Christ that amounts to faithlessness. What's he saying? Even if you sin, even if you have those temporary, I call them temporary moments of insanity where you are not who you really are, a child of God, you're not acting like it. God remains faithful. God understands that we'll not be perfect. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Your sin does not negate your salvation because God cannot deny himself. One man said the human faith, faith, faithlessness only serves to decorate the faithfulness of God. Paul was asserting that despite human unfaithfulness, God's saving purpose has not retreated. You see, you can have the strength to be an effective Christian because God is faithful. He will not desert you. It's not dependent on you. Your sin does not negate it. He will not fail you. 
He'll always be with you. In all of his words and his actions, we have the confidence that he is perfectly consistent. What he has spoken, he will do. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can have the strength to be an effective Christian because it's not about you. You say, I'm not very smart. But you serve an all-knowing God. Say, I'm not very assertive. But you serve a God who impacts lives. Say, I don't know everything in the Bible. But you know the gospel. You can have the strength to be effective. You can trust God and you can be an effective Christian because God is working in you. You can disciple others. You can stay focused on Christ. You can do the hard work of the spiritual disciplines. You can work hard at your walk with God because God will empower you. He gives you understanding. He empowers you. Jesus' death, resurrection, and reign have not failed. He has all power. His word cannot be bound. It will always accomplish what God sent it to do. It doesn't need our our tinkering to make it effective. It doesn't need religious freedom to make it effective. It's effective because it's God's word. And so the gospel is advancing. And God has called us to this glorious work. We can be a part of the gospel advance. And we can do it all with confidence because God's promises are true. We will live with Him. We will reign with Him. And He will keep His promises. You can have the strength to be an effective Christian in the midst of a secular world. Let me conclude with four ways you can apply this to your life today. I hope that you have many more. But let me highlight these four. Number one, regularly rehearse the works of God in your life. God is at work. So rehearse those works. Don't forget them. Remind yourself of them over and over and over. Number two, remind yourself that you serve a God who is alive. He is not dead. He conquered death. He can certainly handle every problem we have today. Number three, don't limit the power of God's word. Don't put it in a box. It is not dependent on anything in this world. His word, his truth abides forever. No politician No country, no persecution, no change in culture can limit his word. You don't have to modify it. You don't have to change it. You don't have to make it more palatable. You simply have to proclaim it. Finally, because of all that, trust his promises. Trust him. Trust him. He's faithful because he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that you have not left us alone in this life to figure it out by ourselves. But that you sent your son to die for our sin, to deal with that problem, so that through faith alone we can enter into a relationship with you. And as a result, we can become a part of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is forever.
We don't need to fear this life or the things of this world. So Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to see you. Help us to obey you. Give us the strength that you promised to be effective. Lord, our desire is to see this country turn back to you. Our desire is to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So help us to be effective. Help us to do the work to contemplate your word and to rightly apply it, to be humble in our interactions with it, to handle it as it was meant to be handled, to believe what it actually says and not make it say what we want it to say. Lord, help us to rightly handle the word of truth. Allow your spirit to illumine our lives and our minds that we might understand what you have for us. And in all things, Lord, we ask that you might receive the praise and the honor and the glory. Keep our eyes fixed on you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.